Welcome to Secret Movie Clubbers, the Secret Movie Club Podcast 148. Today we are talking about if Seven Samurai is the movie I would give the aliens. I don't know who necessarily I'd give this to. I, I do know who I would. If there was somebody who thought that great movies were just movies like Seven Samurai and Grand Illusion and Rear Window, all bangers, I would say you need to see Russ Meyer's 1970 Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll unofficial sequel, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, written by film critic Roger Ebert who would go on to become one of the most influential American film critics of his generation. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. The mind-blowing, could only be made by Russ Meyer, crazy NC-17, hilarious, almost indescribable beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And uh, Roger Ebert, who is with us today. What's up? It's Daniel. Hey gamers, it's me, Carnal Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion, here with a guy who really freaks me out, Edwin Gomez. Hello America, it's another day, not a weird, strange freaky podcast and i guess i'm supposed to be here today i guess i don't know uh, by the time that you hear this we're actually doing fantasia 2000 for josh salisbury's birthday on 35 millimeter fantasia is one of my favorite disney movies of all time one of the great animated movies interestingly many people don't know or forget that disney actually made fantasia 2000 in the year 2000 that was actually walt disney's original idea was every seven or eight years fantasia would be re-released with some of the episodes dropped and new episodes in if you don't know fantasia never seen it it's animated episodes to classical pieces of music or orchestral pieces of music and fantasia 2000 I watched with my son, actually. I put it on, and I had forgotten the flying whales to the Pines of, I think, Respighi. I got to look it up, or the Pines of Rome, whatever that classical piece is. But it was beautiful, and Craigie and I were watching it at 6 in the morning, and it made me very happy. Come see that on 35mm. Then it's actually an animated weekend. Saturday and Sunday, we're doing Cowboy Bebop the movie and Ghost in the Shell. Saturday is sold out. Uh, Sunday is almost sold out. So almost certainly when you hear this, it'll be sold out. But this is Connor cutting in from the future where we've actually added a third screening Monday, May 1st, which is only halfway sold out as of this episode's release. We're doing our Secret Movie Club filmmaking workshop may 3rd if you've got a script submit it to us at community at secretmovieclub.com it just has to be under five pages and four characters if it's five pages and four characters you're good and anything under that you're good but don't give us a 20 page scene with 30 characters you're not good as always you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com find out everything we're doing from april through june we've announced our entire spring season at secretmovieclub.com get tickets at event right there you go okay i'm gonna have some more of this Hours old coffee. Oh, so good. Thank you, yeah. Today we're talking about, I think, one of the great movies. It is my favorite. I, I say this, Connor's going to have to bleep it out. I call them bat crazy movies. And what I mean by that is they're not so bad it's good. In fact, I was talking with a programmer who hates that term so bad it's good. A lot of people do. And we've, we've talked about it before. But I define bat crazy movies as... You can't believe they got made. You have no idea who the person is who made them. They're clearly singular people, often in a way that disturbs you a little bit. You're like, this person has got some things going on. But the third thing is you're like, and yet this movie is legitimately great. It is crazy and amazing. Yodorowsky is sort of the easiest person to point out here. El Topo, Holy Mountain, Santa Sangre. These are movies when people show them to you, you're like, that got made? And then you go, 
there's some real artistry there. I feel that way about Russ Meyer. Russ Meyer was a World War II vet who uh, had a fixation on breasts. And uh, <laughs> he was an amazing combat photographer. And he took that talent and he started making what were called nudie cuties in the late 50s and the early 60s. Definitely not hardcore porn earlier. I don't think he, I think maybe his final films dipped into hardcore a little bit. I actually don't know that they ever did. I think he stayed softcore to the end of his career. Uh, softcore meaning that there would be simulated sex but never real sex. But Russ Meyer started making these movies for almost no money around his home and in the California desert. One of them I remember, I think was called The Immoral Mr. T's where he could see people naked. And so you would see a housewife, but she would be wearing nothing and she'd go wash her dishes. And for the late 50s and the early 60s, everyone was like, oh yes, please. And bit <laughs> by bit, these movies were making tons of money. And he eventually made a movie called Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, which famously Quentin Tarantino remade as his part of Grindhouse, Death Proof. Now, it's an amazing movie. It's probably next to Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, my favorite Russ Meyer movie. And that movie had it was about three women that go out in the desert and just in great cars and seduce and beat up a bunch of really stupid men. And this movie made tons of money. And then he made a movie called Vixen. And Vixen is also a crazy movie, made for no money. And I think Vixen made maybe a million dollars or something. And 20th Century Fox was like, wait a second here. This guy made a movie for $50,000 and made a million dollars. They hire Russ Meyer. They give him a lot of money, hoping he can work as Russ Meyer magic. Or Russ gets a young Roger Ebert to write the script for Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which... Fox had uh, this property, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, based on a book from the mid-60s. Very famous book, very famous movie about women that sort of lose their lives to sex, drugs, ennui, and rock and roll. Actually, no, I'm sorry. It's more about pills. Valley of the Dolls, forgive me, I think is more about women who start to experiment with sex and pills because they're miserable in their home lives. So then Beyond the Valley of the Dolls has nothing to do with Valley of the Dolls other than it's about this group, the Carrie Nations. They're an all-girl rock band. They come to LA and uh, they meet this record producer named Z-Man and Z-Man introduces them to orgies, drugs, the LA scene in the late 60s. It is mind-blowing that any studio made this movie. It got an NC-17. There is a lot of sex in it, but it's simulated. Roger Ebert wrote part of the script in iambic pentameter. Uh, Z-Man only speaks in Shakespearean iambic pentameter, if anyone pays attention. It explores everything from race relations to in sometimes very regressive ways but race not race related race relations actually pretty hip in the movie but the lesbian relationship looked at today is kind of like oh no but still very interesting abortion drugs has a crazy ending and it's all done as only russ meyer can do with incredible editing and a roger ebert script i'll say this i saw in a theater i saw an archival fox print at the New Beverly Cinema, and when I saw it, it was the grooviest, most fantastic, most beautiful, and insanely rock and roll movie I've ever seen. It is truly one of the greatest movies ever made in the history of cinema. And that's a lot coming from Edwin, because Edwin yeah. never says that. The movie did freak me out. It was all groovy, though, and it was all happening, man. It has the greatest soundtrack I've ever heard in a movie. It has some groovy, groovy songs, man. My favorite part is the part where they're like road tripping to Los Angeles and and they sing a song with the gentle people. And there's like, there's like grooving out, man. Like that whole scene shot so damn well. And we got that dude. I could go on and on about, there's so many great details in this movie. It's just, 
it's so hard to pick what's so good. The girl characters are truly amazing. The guy's like truly one a dude for like the sixty, you know, like yeah, dude, like has a sixties look, man. Like wow, we can never get that ever again. It's in that movie, but it lives in that movie. Even though it came out in the seventies, it's not seventies movie. It's one of the last great movies of the sixties, man. It's the last hoorah, man. And it's an LA movie. It's an L.A. movie, man. A show L.A. in the 60s, man, where everything is free and groovy, man. All right, man? Except for the ending, which was unfortunate because it comes out of nowhere. Damn, it just it has an incredible fast pace that no other movie has ever done before. Scorsese has admitted that the sequence where the guy sleeps with the girl in the back of the Rolls Royce and they go, Royce, Bentley, Rolls-Royce, Bentley, and all that editing. Scorsese has said that that editing has actually influenced him. See, there you go, man. And also the poem that they give when they introduce L.A. Scorsese has said that the Russ Meyer editing and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and I agree with them, is legit genius editing. It is genius editing. The movie should have won an Oscar for editing, man. It should have won. It should have won for everything, man. It was groovy, man. It I've was never a time where everything, like, everything is free, Whoa, man. gonna explode. Okay. He's gonna transcend. And you didn't f***ing show it, you bastard. We are showing it on 35 from an Academy Archive print. Uh, well, Daniel. Well, when are we gonna get that print? When are we gonna get that print? What the print? Oh, he went Yosemite Sam again. Why are you so mad? Because, man, the world's out to get me, man. Just like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, man. What? What are you talking about? <laughs> Just go to the next person. What are you talking about? You got it! <laughs> yeah, I'd probably say solid flick. Whoa, body swap. It's a good movie. I had a good time watching it. I watched it on my phone. What? 480p. It was cropped, unfortunately. I think the original was not, but I don't really care. Oh no, I I love this thing. I sort of feel like Edwin captured the magic of it. It is it is sort of a, a singular little piece of thing. The Roger Ebert connection is the craziest thing because what I associate his writing, his best writing with, and what he focuses on in a screenplay thing is sort of exist in here, but would also still only get like a three out of four from him, which I love. <laughs> He's proud of it. He's written about being. Yeah, I, as he should be. I think it's great. And I agree. I don't think it's so bad. It's a good thing. I also dislike, and I don't think it applies here. I think this is like a chaotic and exhausting. Like this movie makes me tired. Not in a bad way. I just sort of am sleepy afterwards. The energy level that's sustained from the first moment to the last moment is kind of nuts. It's kind of the RRR of late 60s psychedelic rock and roll drug sex pictures. Yeah, I think the energy sustains from start to finish and really doesn't let up, even though the last 15 minutes go gonzo. Um, it feels like a party and the amount of characters that it's focusing on and the fact that it's like fronted by this dope rock band who are good. I, I love when a rock band in a movie is good. There's no question of like, are they actually good? You sort of see them and you're like, they would have a late, like they would be signed to a label there. They're quite impressive. Meyer's such a singular filmmaker and his style works with what he's putting on the screen. It has such like a, I think juvenile is the right word. It has such a juvenile conceit to it, but it works because it's, he just fully leans into it. He's just a big old, he's just a horny boy. Gets to do that with a ton of money for some reason. I don't think that'll ever quite happen again, but I, I also love, I love, I love the, the general idea of it sort of about, you know, making it in Hollywood to a degree and it's this sort of melodrama but if you were to pair it with other movies that are about the same thing, I don't, it would be like a very difficult thing to pair with in a great way. I'm probably free associating incorrectly, but it looks like Connor's still behind him. Uh, I'm sure it's not, but it reminds me of Babylon, Damien Chazelle's Babylon. And I'm just curious, 
I haven't seen Babylon, so I can't really speak from experience, but wasn't that also kind of Hollywood excess pushed to extreme? Though his Babylon is sort of a very negative, I think the movie's really good, but I think it's a very negative critique of the idea of that type of excess. Uh, I mean, it leans into it, but also I think paints a, this was bad type of thing. Just side note, the Beastie Boys quote, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, reefer. (laughs) The lawyer character. That's on one of their uh, tracks. So this is my first Russ Meyer rodeo. When I think of Russ Meyer, uh, one of the hosts of a podcast I like, The Flop House, talks about how, as a teen, Russ Meyer made him feel like he would find love because he was like, if Russ Meyer can find this many women to show... <laughs> Show him their boobs, he can find at least one to show him theirs. You know, weirdly, I thought that this, if this influenced something, I feel like it might have influenced Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, probably. Like, it structurally kind of feels like that in certain ways. I will say, I liked it. I mostly kind of thought, like, oh, this is kind of weird. <laughs> like, that was, like, my main reaction to the movie. It was, like, frantic in a way that I didn't really enjoy did you watch it on your own i did watch it on my own it did like at home maybe watching it in a theater with other people would elevate it i i did find it like i like i had to pause it a couple of times because i was like i need this movie to calm down um (laughs) i was like no no uh, it's not supposed to calm down it's supposed to keep going and going and blow your damn mind away did you like did you do five bumps of coke before this podcast what's going on no i didn't have any coke at all freaking me out you're freaking me out man i've never seen you at this energy level at noon because it's beyond the valley of the dolls man one of the greatest movies ever made man okay man yeah connor keep going sorry all right if i'm allowed to continue um It was like frantic in a way because there is a lot of really good editing. There's there's a lot of like match cuts that I really like. Like I like the um, the taxi fare thing cutting to the record press is really great. But it also felt like there's like bits missing almost where where like a character would be like, let's go have a conversation. It'd be like shot of a character. Let's go have a conversation over here. And then it cuts to the reverse shot, but they're in the conversation over there already. And I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> like all the close ups are in the movie and all the wide shots are in the movie, but there's no other shots in the movie. Oh, yeah. Russ, don't do that. Then the end of the movie doesn't really make any sense. And the sexual politics of it aren't <laughs> great. Um, <laughs> to say, well, that's to say the least. Let's, yeah, let, let's set that up real quick. So as the movie develops, you know, there's these three girls and there's their manager. The band, the Carrie Nations. One of the girls turns out to be a lesbian and all of the girls end up kind of falling into relationships with different guys or, or in her case, a, a woman. The band member who's a lesbian ends up getting, I guess, raped by the manager who then later on goes on to try to commit suicide on live TV, but he only becomes paraplegic in a wheelchair. Then at the end of the movie, the Z-Man character is trying to seduce the guy who's dating the one of the other girls. Yeah, the, the, the light boy toy Adonis guy. Z-Man is revealed to be, as the movie states it, a woman in drag. Who I guess it's kind of framed as jealous of these women or something like that. And he ends up killing the boy toy. He ends up killing both of the lesbians. All the other characters show up and the rapist falls and is now can walk again. And it's a happy ending. And then they all get married. I don't, whatever, the, the modern politics of it. Just even, even in the context of the time, I don't know if that dude deserved redemption on that scale <laughs> that the guy in the wheelchair gets. On top of the fact that none of it really makes any sense. And it 
comes out of basically completely out of nowhere the last like 20 minutes oh and his butler turns out to be a nazi yeah or at the very <laughs> least he's has an outfit maybe he's just it's like that guy that clarence thomas is hanging out with he just he just appreciates oh, yeah, it just casually Harlan crow has like a signed mind comp yeah Yikes. yeah it's for appreciation oh. yeah that's normal you know people do that and that's Fine. I find myself having these conversations with people a lot where I realize that the way that I perceive and receive movies is different, I guess, like all of us. We all perceive and receive movies uh, on different wavelengths. I saw this movie for the first time with an audience, which was a great way to see it. We all, many of us, were seeing it for the first time, and the basic reaction was a lot of laughter and like, what? What the? What? what and it just kept like escalating as the movie went on and we all kind of got attuned to its wavelength and it, it kept trumping the trump every time you were like well that must be the craziest thing that happens in the movie weirdly the climax is the craziest thing that happens in the movie and you are aware from the beginning that there's something politically as you said connor even in, in its own time it feels wrong a lot <laughs> yeah. of the movie feels off and feels wrong but because the whole thing feels like it's being made by somebody or by two people who are having a good time and are having a laugh. And in a way, I think the whole movie feels like it's exploring things, but at the same time, having fun at the expense of what it's doing. I have a blast. Like there are things in the movie that I don't think I would ever do that I, I admire. Like how at that opening party scene at Z-Man's, the aunt character, is there with the lawyer and then her old boyfriend walks in and within five seconds they're basically like where have you been i've been thinking about you i've been thinking about you i think we want to get married you've been out and i was like yeah what they just ellipsed four scenes and just he walked in and now they're in love again i was like great and then there's that scene where i think she's the drummer right the african-american she starts a relationship with a black guy who's going to school for law, but then he's so busy trying to make ends meet that she has an affair with a boxer who never wears a shirt and just always has a towel. And then he walks in and they get in a fight. And I was like, this is great. And Russ Meyer notoriously in interviews has talked about Russ Meyer's a guy who's like your prototypical fever dream of an army dude from the 1940s. He just likes to drink, eat meat, <laughs> and have sex with big bosomed ladies. And he has no illusions about what America's about because he was in the war. And so that's what these movies are. Totally unsentimental, crazy sex movies by a guy who kind of has a crazy hedonistic philosophy that at the same time is satirical because he kind of calls America out on all its BS. And so if you're on that wavelength, there's something about that. Um, I have told this story off camera, off mic a lot, so I want to memorialize it here. When I was an undergrad at USC in the late 90s, Russ Meyer was still alive, and I invited him to come speak, and he came. He came to speak about uh, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, and every question I asked him, he ignored. And it was great. And he, he was already, he was like in his 80s at that point, and he had a little dementia in his late 70s, but his stories were great. So I was like, Mr. Meyer, you're editing has been acknowledged as some of the greatest editing in cinema. Could you talk to me about how you approach editing? And Russ Meyer would take a breath and he'd go, it was the end of World War II. <laughs> we were marching on Paris. We came across a brothel with some of the hottest whores you've ever seen. I requisitioned it. I said, Paris can wait. We had all this liquor brought in and oh, what a week it was. Drinking, screwing, screwing, drinking. Hemingway shows up. 
Hemingway, you know Hemingway. I mean, yes, Mr. Ma, I know Hemingway. He was a correspondent. I tried to get Ernest laid for a week. For a week, I said, Ernest, the war's over. Look at these French whores. All he would do is drink and get really sullen and look at the guys. I don't know what that was about, but I left <laughs> Ernest alone. And I kept drinking and screwing. That was his answer for editing. And the whole audience was like, just like a Russ Meyer movie. We were all like, what? And then as by way of transition for Ebert, I go, so Mr. Meyer, at this point, I realized he was not going to answer any of my questions, but he was going to have better answers. And I was like, Mr. Meyer, you worked with a young Roger Ebert, who was the screenwriter on Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Could you tell me about what that experience was like? And he was like, Ebert. <laughs> oh, he was a fat Catholic kid from Illinois. Oh, so buttoned up, so inhibited. I said, this has got to end. So one day I called my secretary in and she took off all her clothes because she and I were having a thing at the time. And I said, just, just be naked here. And Roger was coming for a story meeting. And I said, Roger, come on in. Come on in, Roger. Roger came in in that sweater vest he would wear or whatever. And he saw her and he looked at me and he beamed and he said, ah, Hollywood. That was Russ <laughs> Meyer's story about Roger Ebert. He didn't finish that story. And we were all sitting there, we were all like, whoa! And then that same night, so Russ Meyer tells all these crazy inappropriate stories. At the end of the night, these two Playboy bunnies came into USC's room 108, which was a screening room. And they were like, it was almost, uh, you know, they, their bosoms were too big. But that was Russ Meyer. And he puts his arms around them. And I know he had planned it. I know he had planned it. The whole audience is going crazy. He's like, well, I got to go. I got a date with these two lovely ladies. Good night. And everyone is like, well, this is crazy. And then he comes up to me and he goes, you want to come? We're going to go drinking. And I had driven my sister from UCLA. And I was like, um, I, I, I've got to drive my sister back to UCLA, Mr. Meyer. I'm sorry. And he was like, <laughs> okay. And then he just left. And uh, that was the right decision. Heather couldn't drive. It was totally the right decision. I wish Uber had existed because maybe I would have more like Russ Meyer stories. But to this day, I'm like, what would have happened if I had gone on that night of drinking with Russ Meyer? <laughs> like a good Russ Meyer movie. No, no real smooth transition. Ebert wrote the script of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, but he would go on. You know, in, in some ways, I look at Ebert. This is probably not right. But I almost look at Ebert as a different part of film criticism than Pauline Kael. And it's really important. You know, it looks like Tarantino has announced his final movie. Did you hear that? It's not about Pauline Kael. Uh, oh. He confirmed it. Oh, who's it about? I don't know, but it doesn't make any sense. And it's a person that worked for a studio, Pauline Kael, Paramount, Pauline Kael. But no, it's not about her, which is weird. We'll be surprised. We'll see. He has every right to get his maybe, maybe not his final movie. I'm, I'll be very curious to see what it's like. Anyway, Roger Ebert. This guy writes Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and then goes on to a lifetime of criticism, uh, film criticism, has a TV show, probably the most famous TV film critic of all time, along with Gene Siskel. You know, with the passing of Ebert, weirdly, I felt there was a passing of an era where film critics really could have a really big influence on movie lovers and movie watchers. And I mean, I was curious about this because funnily enough, back when I was in um, college, I had a friend who did, just didn't know who Ebert was. And I was like, really? <laughs> I remember they got frustrated at me because they were like, well, I don't know everybody. <laughs> but I asked my parents, you know, my, my parents are like 65, 70, and both of my parents know who Roger Ebert is. But in contrast, they don't know who Pauline Kael is. That's, you couldn't have told a better illustrative 
conservative story. That's exactly the different spheres they occupy. But everybody in this town, for the most part, would know who Pauline Kale is if you're in our worlds. Part of it is like a generational thing. You know, Kale was was kind of before Ebert. They had overlap for sure. But Ebert is kind of the breakthrough. I don't know. He almost reminds me of like Spielberg, where I think some people kind of are dismissive of him because of his sort of pop resonance. Oh, totally. Yeah. But I think he's a cool dude. It's funny that he wrote this. He wrote some other stuff with Russ Meyer. I know. Yeah, he ghost wrote Russ's all of his, the rest of his movies. All the movies after Beyond the Valley of the Dolls are ghost written by Ebert. Yeah, and like specifically, there's one called like um, Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens. Uh, he's credited on as R. Hyde. I know that he specifically talked about how Mad Magazine was like his awakening into like art. And it's kind of funny we're recording this now because Al Jaffe just passed away, who was one of the biggest contributors to Mad Magazine. I learned to be a movie critic by reading Mad Magazine. Mad's parodies made me aware of the machine inside the skin, of the way a movie might look original on the outside, while inside it was just recycling the same old dumb formulas. I did not read the magazine. I plundered it for clues to the universe. Pauline Kael lost it at the movies, which is a reference to a book she wrote, and I lost it at Mad Magazine. And, you know, it was interesting. He's, he, you know, he's definitely had stuff I've disagreed with, obviously, over the years. His stance on video games was stupid, <laughs> where he said that they weren't art. It's funny, like, there's certain, like, everybody dismisses Crash, that movie, uh, that one best picture as being a movie that, like, was, is really overrated, but he loved that movie, genuinely. And he was just also just a funny writer. I, I like, I reread that North review he, he wrote, uh, where his famous, I hated this movie. I hated, hated, hated this movie. <laughs> He was a good writer. There's yeah, there's a lot of like quotable Ebert. Not just cool guy, man. It's cool dude, dude. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his review of Sam Peckinpah's uh, "Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia." I think that review kind of like in that movie specifically put him on the map. He gave a terrific review for Martin Scorsese's uh, first movie, "Who's That Knocking on My Door?" For Bonnie and Clyde, he also re- review on that one, giving like the praise it deserved, and uh, yeah, you know, it's, and also there is a documentary about him called Life Itself, which is like the most emotional documentary I've ever seen. It's uh, truly a, a recommend watch if you want to know more about him. He's truly like a humble man, and I, I teared up while watching him because it, it was so emotional uh, uh, of what his writing and his reviews has done for so many movies. Yeah, I agree. It's 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 a great doc. He also, even though his wife did not want it, he gave the documentarians the ability to film him during his surgeries and as he was deteriorating because he wanted people to see the truth because he was such a filmmaker and a film lover that I think on some level he knew a movie's only good if it's truthful. And his wife hated that. She did not want that, but he okayed it. And when you see those scenes as he's deteriorating, for people who don't know, at the end of his life, Ebert had horrible health issues and lost the ability to speak, then lost the ability to eat. Uh, It was horrible. But he told a filmmaker, film it, film it for your documentary. The filmmaker who actually had made Hoop Dreams, a movie that Ebert really championed. His favorite movie of the 90s. I went to film school in Chicago and Chicago, very proud of Native Son. their connection to Roger Ebert and his work at the, um, was it the Tribune? Chicago Sun-Times. Siskel was the Tribune. Regardless, uh, I was there before he passed and then after and it was really interesting. His impact, because growing up in Oklahoma, I was aware of them and their writing. I think it mostly speaks to specifically Ebert's ability to write write in a way that was both for people knowledgeable in the language of film, but also 
read to people that weren't not like an educated way but in a way that made you feel like it was approachable in a way that made you feel like it wasn't a club you weren't allowed into if that makes sense because i think there's it's you know very easy in different cultural things to feel that you can't be included because there's so much work to be done and i think film can feel that way in a gatekeeping way and the way eber wrote about things made it feel accessible i felt that and then i think a lot of people did i think that's why his his program was so popular and why he has the legacy that he has and it's it's so interesting too because i think since he's passed there's been through the internet this sort of turn against critics where criticism's been defined as inherently negative and it's not there's incredible writers doing incredible things but i think uh, there's been this way that things have been conveyed that because you know well critics don't get it and this isn't for the critics that type of odd mindset or it's supposed to be this companion thing of if you're on the fence or oftentimes I'll read stuff that because something I don't I had no interest in seeing could win me over by by someone's words about it and I think Ebert defined that for so many of the current writers obviously had controversy to a degree if in some of his works but I don't know I think he was kind of singular and I love that his stuff still archived because I, I often go back to if I'm watching something from the period that he was alive in it's great to go back and read sort of what he thought about it I feel like it always presented a new view to to watch it a new lens to watch it through I've often said about Pauline Kael I actually my taste and Pauline Kael's taste I disagreed with about 80 percent of what she thought but I loved the passion that she brought, that like cinema was worthy enough to have verbal battles about in a way, which I love that idea. And that's why I love Pauline Kael, even though so much of what she thought enrages me. I don't know why she went after Orson Welles. You know, that's how she made her bones was by saying that Orson Welles didn't have anything to do with the success of Citizen Kane, which is ridiculous. Then she would often uh, always support Brian De Palma movies and Robert Altman movies, no matter what. And I love Altman. I love Altman. But she would bag on Spielberg a lot. She would often consider him just a crass person and sort of poo-poo him as not really part of the 70s. And it would like, I'd, I'd get nuts. But in honesty, with me being rigorous with myself, I'm the same with Ebert. There's a lot about Ebert where I agree with him. And then there's a lot with Ebert. I'm like, I, I don't agree with that at all. And sometimes I feel like Ebert had a mission that I agreed with. But I think that sometimes he would go easy on movies that he should have been a little more hard on. And he would go hard on movies that I think maybe were better than he thought they were. But he was a good writer. He was a great writer. He loved cinema. One of the things I want to compliment Ebert on is he found, as Connor was saying, he would do this half-hour TV show with Siskel, and they would find ways to smuggle in reviews on international movies and art house movies and independent movies, along with their review of Return of the Jedi, or along with their review of Last Crusade, or along with their review of Titanic. And that way you'd be like, oh, what's this weird British film, Sexy Beast? Uh, I guess I'll go see that. I didn't know Ben Kingsley and Ray Winston made that kind of looks like an interesting movie. So I actually, I love Ebert. And I think what you said, Connor, is I do look at him as the Spielberg of film critics. And he wanted to. He did occupy very much. He fully embraced mainstream pop culture communication. But there was an integrity. And I think since his passing, especially, we all sense it. And it's interesting, I heard this podcast, if people want to listen to it, New York Times, The Daily, just a week or two ago. By the time you hear this, it'll be a month old or so, where A.O. Scott, the head film critic of The New York Times, is leaving. He did like an exit interview. And he said, I just can't do it anymore. I could do it if every now and then there was an exciting movie coming out of America 
said like, look, I, I could watch 30 of the others if there was one or two of the really interesting, what's this movie's trying to do something, movies that I remember growing up on from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But he said, it's just not, that's not the ratio anymore. For me, it's like I got to watch 99 of these things, these IP movies to get one movie. And so I'm going to go into book. Now, I disagree with him. I actually think that we need film critics, especially now, to talk about movies like the Bowie movie or RRR or things that are happening in international cinema or indie cinema or, you know, I don't feel that way. But I do think that Ebert's passing was the passing of an era of a primacy of film criticism. And I just hope there'll be a resurrection. And I know there will be. I feel this. There'll be a resurrection of really interesting film criticism that'll become vital again. Pop culture, final thoughts. Talk about anything that is not what we just talked about. Speaking of good movies, I've two of the movies that I've watched, again, good, bad, maybe not the best way to put it, but I would still describe them that way. <laughs> Neither of these are like slam dunks, but they're both fun. They're both on YouTube. First is Last Vampire on Earth, a Twilight ripoff that you think is going to be Twilight for Christians, and then it becomes something else you included a clip of that didn't you in one of the pre-shows it plays like a parody the clip i i did and then the other movie uh is this movie called alien private eye which is this 80s movie uh written and directed by a man credited only as victor it's pretty embarrassing i'm kind of quoting red letter media here i, I got both of these from there that it almost feels like a producer style scam to like <laughs> sink money into something uh, to like reclaim some sort of insurance but both are fun watch with some buddies crack open some cold ones and yeah, you can find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz and watch me play D&D Tuesday evenings at twitch.tv slash NerdHala. I revisited the very strange sequel to a very funny early 80s uh, comedy known as uh, Caddyshack. And yes, I'm talking about Caddyshack 2. It's not that bad. It's not great. It's a terrible movie, but Jackie Mason is pretty hilarious. And Cherry Chase is also hilarious, and that's about it. Uh, I also revisited the movie American Made. Actually, uh, first time watching American Made with Tom Cruise. And I wish Tom Cruise did more rated R movies. I wish he did more of that, because uh, he was really good in this movie. Following one of his very underslept performances. I've been thinking about Tom. I mean, I know we already did a podcast on him. He's such a weird dude, because when he commits to like a Magnolia or an American Maid, you're like, oh, he works in these too. Yeah, yeah, he did. This one was kind of like, I, I kept seeing clips on it on, surprisingly on TikTok. And so, you know what? I'll just buy it on me when I did. I watched it. I was like, wow, this is actually pretty damn good. It show how f***ed up the U.S. government was in the 80s. Uh, also, I revisited uh, Oliver Stone's very toxic sports movie, Any Given Sunday. Not that bad. The editing is all over the place and... There's apparently 300 cuts in that movie, which it's noticeable. It really shows how tough sports uh, games are and behind the scenes of it. You know, it's really, it's really effed up. You know, uh, Al Pacino gives a great performance, you know, just being Al Pacino. And uh, yeah, I have a 35 trailer of it around here somewhere. Of his later period work, I think Any Given Sunday is one of the better ones, for sure. Yeah, I know it is, it is. Because it, it, it steps away from like his Vietnam War movies, his uh, political stuff. This is like about sports in general. like, And even he, even he finds a way how corrupted it is in that movie, which is uh, pretty great. It's also funny because I've never seen a football coach, an American football coach that looks like Al Pacino. Ever. I know. No one has. But Al Pacino pulls it off surprisingly really well. And it's and he's, he's, really, he's really great at it. Uh, I've been going through the Criterion channels doing like an erotic thriller uh, month. And I'm burning through some of those. I did um, Body Heat, 
Crimes of Passion, The Bedroom Window, and Sister Sister so far. Having a great time living it up. I guess it's like a horny April by accident. What was your favorite of those? I really loved Body Heat. I thought Crimes of Passion, honestly, in Beyond the Valley of the Doll terms, has that similar sort of just like chaoticness to it. Ken Russell. Uh, the Bedroom Window was the biggest surprise because I think the premise is so good and then it really falls apart in the third act. The star of it, uh, Steve Gutenberg, is a real strange casting decision. He's good, but the people that he's... <laughs> The people that he's sexually involved with in this movie, you're like, hmm, I don't know if I believe this with respect to him. <laughs> you mean that the Gutenberg could attract the people of the choir? I just, I assume with what his, his career, what his usual casting stuff was, it's interesting that this was for him. And then I also went to go see the Super Mario Brothers movie. I gotta take Craigie, what's your review? It is a TikTok fever dream of your attention span is never tested because no shot lasts more than a few seconds. Uh, but it's really entertaining. It's made for adults and that there's a ton of references you're going to get if you played the stuff, but it is so curated towards kids in a way that's both lovely and frustrating as, as an older audience member. I mean, I was very entertained. It's like a hot 90 minutes, so it's an easy watch. Um, I don't know. We're, uh, I know it made like, what, $400 million or something, so we're going to get many more. So... I'm curious to see what it will become. I'm desperate to take uh, Craigie to go see it. It's the perfect thing. I wish I could have taken my nephew. He's really big into Mario right now. He's like five or six. And I think it would have been cool because the kids were loving it. The kids in our theater were losing their minds. Does Donkey Kong become an ally? Uh, I don't want to spoil it because Connor hasn't seen it. Okay, because I, Craigie tries to understand my love of Donkey Kong. And so I got Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze. I was like, no, Donkey Kong's a homie. Great game. Oh, I was like, look, it's all about family, Craigie. And we changed all the names. So Donkey Kong became Daddy Kong. And then Diddy became Craggy Kong. And then Dixie became Carmen and Pammy Kong or Mama Kong. And then Cranky Kong became Grandpa Craig Kong or Abuelo Kong. And I was like, see, they all help each other out. Craggy was like, I get it. I get it. It's like, see, they're a family of monkeys. That's why I love it. And it is a great game. It's such a beautiful game. Like when he goes underwater. I mean, not to plug Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze, but it's it's a dope. You can plug. It's great. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the African Serengeti. I've already told this, but it has like this Lion King level score to it. And I told Craig, I was playing it. I was so moved. I was like, Craigie, it's a celebration of life. And Craigie now, every time there's a great level on a video game, he's like, Daddy, it's a celebration of life. And I'm like, it is a celebration of life, son. And then we bond. <laughs> and then the girls look at us like, what the f***? Uh, <laughs> but they're going to play soon. I got them the Coco Melon game. Um, I am reading. I haven't done this in a while. Of course you're reading. You're always reading. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, obviously I'm reading. But what I meant is it's been a while since uh, I read a biography or autobiography about a movie person. In my 20s and really 30s, that's almost all I read. And then at some point I, I, I went back to fiction. But I got so into all these movies we programmed recently where Ben Hecht, the famous classic Hollywood screenwriter, was a screenwriter. You know, The Front Page, His Girl Friday. He ghost wrote a lot of movies, a lot of Hitchcocks. He did Notorious, uh, Spellbound, Foreign Correspondent, et cetera, et cetera. That I found out he had an autobiography and I got it. It's called Child of the Century. And I know I talked about it earlier uh, where I said like he preambles for a hundred pages or something about his philosophy. And I was like, why are you doing this? Once he gets into right about where it hits uh, his family and his early career as a newspaper person, it really is amazing. And I had this, it's not really a revelation. I guess it's an affirmation uh, where I was like, right, he's a great screenwriter because he lived so much life before he became a screenwriter. 
He honed his craft as a newspaper person. He was a foreign correspondent in Germany in World War I. He just saw all this human nature and he poured all of that into his scripts, like characters that he had met and cataloged. And it just affirmed for me that I think some of the best movie making is done by people who do a lot of living, you know, a lot of living and a lot of reading. So if you get a chance, Child of the Century, Ben Hecht, it's really fascinating. You got to wade through the first 80 pages though, man. I don't know why his editor was like, hey, let's put the philosophy at the end. Let's kind of just dive headfirst into your great anecdotes. Uh, but I waded through it. It's kind of like Lord of the Rings Fellowship, where you got to spend all that time before you actually start the adventure. It's some kind of test. And then you're like, ah, here we go. So there we go. Uh, Secret Movie Club Podcast 149 will be about, which I just screened and it held up, Martin Scorsese's Silence and Passion Projects. Uh, silence was probably even more than uh, Last Temptation because the gestation period of Last Temptation was about 16 years. The gestation period of Silence was 25 years. And then we'll talk about passion projects. As always, this podcast was edited by our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz. As always, just go to secretmovieclub.com. Look at our calendar. You can get tickets at Eventbrite. If you have anything you want to write us about, write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Also, I need to throw this in now in the pods. If you like what you hear, it would help us. If you rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, anywhere you can give us a rating, we'd be grateful. Uh, you know, if you don't like it, give us a bad rating. I mean, I'll deal with it. I'll try to up my game. But uh, we do want to keep doing these podcasts and we want to start branching out. And I have to be realistic that the only way we're going to branch out is if I make it a legitimate business model while maintaining our integrity. And the only way I can make it a legitimate uh, business model is if we grow our audience. But only if you like what you hear. So if you like what you hear, give us a review. It helps us. Thank you. And there we go. All right, guys. I will see you next week. Uh, have a great week. Much love. Uh, <laughs> see you later. I love you, family. Craigie wanted to know what baby Mario looked like today. I didn't even know baby Mario existed. <laughs> it so did. It's like, in the new movie. I looked up baby Mario and he was like, oh, he doesn't have a mustache. Baby Mario's existed before the new movie. Yeah, didn't, isn't baby Mario on Mario Kart? And when Mario was born. October 11th. Mario has a birthday? When you guys, if you guys ever have children obsessed with Nintendo, you're going to learn all of this. We, we were children obsessed with Nintendo. That's true. So...